We begin this morning with a geography question. Who can tell me what region of the world we are looking at here on the map? Okay, yeah, in the, old, in the New Testament, this area would have been called Asia Minor. What about like modern day, what are we looking at, Craig? Uh, I think that would probably be part of it, Hutch. Yeah, Turkey, Europe, you might say North Africa, the Mediterranean. Um, I don't know how well the laser pointer is going to be picked up on here. Oh, fairly well. All right, so you got Spain and Portugal over here, France, England up in the little corner here, Italy. This area is Greece with all of the islands. Right next to Greece is Turkey or Asia Minor. And down here, you can see this little body of water that looks like a peace sign. That is the Red Sea, which Israel crossed uh, when they left Egypt. So this makes this Egypt right here. And then this little tiny country is present day nation of Israel. And I just think it's interesting that in this little tiny corner of the world is where God moved Abraham and his family, where Moses received the Ten Commandments, um, this is like the promised land that we read about in the Old Testament. Actually, what you can see on this map here, basically every story in the Bible took place in what you can see on this map. And I just think it's really interesting for like our faith to like strengthen it, that what we're reading about is real, took place in real parts of the world. When we read about the Philistines, and the Babylonians, when we read in the New Testament about the Ephesians and the Thessalonians, it all took place right in this part of the world, a place that maybe some of you would go to vacation on. This isn't some make-believe story in some far-out, untouched corner of the world. It's all right here. Additionally, in addition to strengthening our faith, I think that looking at a map sometimes can enrich our understanding of the scriptures. Uh, just this week in Acts, we encountered some cities that I'm sure none of us know where they exist. Uh, Peter went to Joppa, Lydda, Caesarea, all in chapter 9. And I'm sure if you're anything like me, we just kind of blow by those locations and read the more interesting narratives that happen in those cities. And yet today we're going to take a little bit of time and just note, hey, when we read that Peter went to Joppa or Philip was on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, where was that? If you, if you haven't guessed already through your reading in the book of Acts, geography is a big deal. There are places mentioned all over in the book of Acts. Uh, even our theme verse, which is at the top of your first sheet there and on the screen, mentions three locations. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So right here in our theme verse of Acts, we've got geographical places listed. I showed you this map last week. I apologize for how hard it is to read some of those things. But hopefully it's semi-clear to you. This map illustrates that as we progress through the book of Acts, 
so too does the gospel spread to broader and broader geographical uh, regions. So those first five chapters were kind of contained into that red circle right there, what we read uh, two weeks ago. All took place in Jerusalem, and then the chapters from this week kind of enlarged the region where the gospel had spread into Samaria and Judea. And then by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, we have this giant circle that the gospel has spread to, stretching all the way over to Rome in present-day Italy. Notice also that the cities listed on the map here should be familiar to us. Uh, What looks familiar about those cities on the screen? Yeah, books of the Bible. (laughs) Paul wrote epistles to all of these places. The Corinthians, the Thessalonians, Philippians, right? So all of these places here in present-day Turkey and Greece and Italy, Paul wrote a letter to these people. Again, just reinforcing what I've been saying in these first couple of minutes here, that these are real people, real places, accessible to us today. The Bible records history. Acts is a part of that history, and we're actually going to zoom in just a little bit more on this map into that little region in the bottom right corner where you see Jerusalem and Judea. Back in the Old Testament, this is what it looked like. This is how all of the tribes had allotted their land. Again, I'm sure it's hard even to read who exactly had what portion of land. Maybe the biggest is right there in the middle, the land that Manasseh possessed. Uh, To the south, you can see that was the land of Judah. Uh, The constant landmarks are the Mediterranean Sea on the left there, and then the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea kind of connected in the middle there. This is what the land of Israel looked like during the Old Testament, but by the time of Jesus, that same plot of land no longer looked like that. The tribes did not have claims to this region of the world anymore. It was simply divided into three categories or regions of Galilee in the north by the Sea of Galilee, Samaria in the middle, and Judea in the south. Now, what do you guys know about Samaria? How did Jewish people get along with them? Yeah, they didn't get along with the Samaritans all that well. Um, And so it makes a little bit more sense, just seeing it on the map there, if you wanted to travel from the Jewish region of Galilee down into the Jewish region of Judea, you had to go through or around Samaria to get there. Uh, Judea is where Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Galilee is where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. Uh, These regions appear in Acts 1.8. Remember, we're told that the gospel is going to go to these regions second, but first, the gospel originates right there in Jerusalem. Acts chapters 1 to 5, all of the events that we read about in Jerusalem. Matthias, chosen to replace Judas, uh, the day of Pentecost, Uh, All of these things from the first five chapters take place in that one city. And then we'll see as uh, the morning progresses how the gospel uh, begins to expand in Acts chapters 6 through 10. So let's work through the questions. And as we encounter different cities in uh, these chapters, we will kind of place them on the map for you. We'll begin in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and the first question right out of the gate here. 
asks this, in verses 1 to 7, what problem arises in the early church? There's a problem that happens right away. Could you say that one more time? The widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Turn back to Acts chapter 4, and we'll just like make a brief comment here. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 35, 34, we read that there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. All right, interesting. Kind of sounds like what our church has as a fellowship fund. People would give to kind of this general fund in the church in the this church that is in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. And as people have need, the funds are distributed to various people. Diane pointed out that in Acts chapter 6, it is the widows in particular who are being neglected in the daily distribution. If you remember, widows in this period in history uh, were among the neediest in society, and it was likely that they needed daily some sort of sustenance or support from uh, what I'll call the fellowship fund, what people were contributing to in the book of Acts. Now, there is a, another dynamic to what is going on here in these first seven verses. There are a couple different uh, ethnicities represented as well in the text. Who, who is, or what group of people are the widows that are being neglected from in particular? Hutch. The Hellenists, yeah. And does anyone know who the Hellenists are? Maybe your Bible tells you in the footnote. It's not a ethnicity we encounter a whole lot. Yeah, they were likely Greek-speaking Jews. Um, if you remember, by this point in history, the Jews hadn't really remained in that geographical location right there. They had actually been dispersed, and there were Jews all over the world. Uh, who spoke all sorts of languages. In this instance, the Hellenists were Jews who spoke Greek. And for whatever reason, they were back in Jerusalem, their home country, and there seems to be uh, like a neglect that has happened particularly to the widows who were these Greek-speaking Jews. Now, I came across at least one article that noted that maybe there was some sort of... uh, discriminatory behavior that was going on here. Uh, Maybe it was the local Jews who were purposefully neglecting these immigrants, if you will. I don't know that that's entirely true, because if that were the case, I think the solution would be as easy as saying, hey, remember, we're all one in Christ. Let's treat everyone equally here. That's not the solution that they offer. Remember the apostles say, um... We can't do both the spiritual and administrative responsibilities. It seems that they were spread a little too thin. So how were the responsibilities divided between the apostles and the seven appointed men? Who does what when this problem is presented? Barb. Yeah, yeah. To reiterate what Barb said, the apostles devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, and these seven appointed men, they were the ones who took up the task of overseeing this daily distribution. Now, what role does this seven men seem to parallel today in the church? What does this sound like? What office? 
deacons. Yes, in fact, the word deacon means to serve or to minister. We can see what's going on here in Acts chapter 6 really is a precursor to some of the roles that we have in the church today between deacons who take care of the more administrative type tasks and then the apostles or what we have here at Grace uh, similar would be like the elders that are in, in charge of the spiritual oversight of the people. But we can trace these things all the way back to the book of Acts. And let me ask you, what character qualities had to be true of these seven men? They weren't just pointing at random people. What had to be true of them to be considered for this appointment? Claire? Yeah, they had to have a good reputation, be full of the Spirit, and have wisdom. Similarly, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, give us some more specific credentials for deacons and elders. And what happens in Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8 is we kind of get a up-close look at two deacons in this early church in particular, Stephen and Philip. Philip he shows up in Acts chapter 8. Stephen, he's kind of here in 6 and 7. He is described as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He's doing these great wonders and signs among the people. But with the preaching of the gospel always comes opposition. That, that happens over and over and over again. So we expect no less with Stephen here. As he is doing these things, people oppose him. And that brings us to verse 10. As this group of people rises up against Stephen, how is he able to answer his accusers so well? What is true of Stephen? Cynthia? Yeah, he was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. The exact qualifications that made him eligible to be deacon in the first place are the things that enables him to, like, dispute with these people who are in opposition to the gospel. I, I made it a point last week to mention that the Holy Spirit has a significant role in the book of Acts. Here he is again empowering Stephen as he's debating people uh, to defend the true gospel. Uh, the Holy Spirit is everywhere in this book. What charges are brought against Stephen? These opponents to his message, what do, what do they accuse him of doing? Lynn? Yeah, I think verse 11 of Acts 6 says that. Uh, yeah. Like Lynn said, verse 11, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. There's another description of the charges brought against Stephen. Did anyone else have anything different? I think it's in verse 14. We read, for we have heard him, Stephen, say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. In essence, what Stephen's opponents are doing here is they are accusing him of trying to destroy Judaism, right? What's more important in Judaism than the law and the temple? And here they are coming after Stephen and they say, he's trying to get rid of both. He's blaspheming God and Moses, and he says the temple's going to be destroyed. Well, what previous trial in the scriptures does this one remind you of? We've seen this kind of trial already before. Who does this sound like? Jesus. Yeah, in what ways is it similar? Barb. <laughs> yeah, they, they came against Jesus with the charge that he said he was going to destroy the temple. Here, Stephen is doing the same thing. What else is similar from this trial? There's one other thing in particular. 
Okay. Yep. The charge against Jesus of blasphemy. Totally. Mike? Uh, yeah. Yes, the same charge might have been brought against Jesus. And he has to say uh, early on, like, I'm not here to undo the work of Moses and the prophets. Yeah, I also thought of maybe not a teaching element of this, but simply that false accusers were brought up against Jesus. And so too with Stephen, there are these people who are instigated to bring false charges against him. Yeah. So that's not the only similarity that they share. We'll see more in chapter seven. Let's look at chapter seven questions now. The first one we just discussed, what two accusations are made against Stephen? And that is that he was trying to destroy the temple and change the law. Second question, how does Stephen ultimately answer those accusations in verses 48 to 53? What response does he give, let's say, first of all, in the charge that he was trying to destroy the temple or he was teaching that the temple would be destroyed? How how does he answer that? Lisa? Yeah, he says simply, God doesn't dwell in a house that is built by hands. We might say that God cannot be confined to a physical location. A logical conclusion of this would be that if you destroy the temple, is God destroyed? No, he's not. Uh, One commentator I read pointed out that maybe what Stephen is identifying here is a tendency that Jewish people had at this point in history to worship a building more than they did God. The temple had almost become more important to them because of its grandeur and the prestige that it had than the God they worshipped. Yeah, really interesting. How did Stephen address the accusation that he was trying to change the law? How does he respond to people who accuse him of doing that? Titus. Yeah, great answer. Yeah, so in response to the charge that Stephen was trying to change the law, he turns that accusation right back against them, and he says, you guys have received the law, and you haven't even kept it yourselves. You are guilty of a similar crime against the law that you are accusing me of. Great answer, Titus. That is awesome. And I actually wanted to go back through Stephen's sermon here and just point out some of his train of thought as he is explaining this really long answer to a couple of accusations that are against him. It's fascinating. Maybe even as you were reading it, you were wondering, like, why is he starting all the way back with, like, Abraham and giving us a whole history of Israel in in response to a pretty simple question? Are these things true? And he says, well, let me go back to Abraham and tell you about this. Let's look at some of these verses together. We're in Acts chapter 7. In his retelling of Israel's history, Stephen is careful to point out that the rejection that the present day religious leaders are showing to him and to Jesus is something that has been true of Israel throughout their history. Beginning with Joseph in verse 9, we read that the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt 
But God was with, was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Stephen draws their attention back to Joseph. Remember the patriarchs, the big guys in Israel's history, the ones after whom the 12 tribes are named, they're not saints. They sold their brother into slavery. They, they were jealous of Joseph. They rejected him. And what happened to Joseph? There was this great reversal of fortune, if you will, where God raised up Joseph. Verse 10 says that he became a ruler. That word ruler is significant because it appears again. But here's what happened to Joseph. You guys, the patriarchs, rejected him, and he was made a ruler. The, the story keeps going, and we get down to verse um, 23, where we're introduced to the story of Moses. Uh, Verse 23 to 29 recounts the story of Moses one day going out and observing the slavery of his own people. He sees an Egyptian who is uh, beating a fellow Israelite. And what does he do to that Egyptian? He kills him. And Moses thinks that, you know, the people will understand like, hey, I'm on your guys' side. I'm coming to your aid here. I think the text even says he was hoping they would know that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand because the very next day, verse 26 says, he appeared to them and they were quarreling and he tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? Verse 27, but the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Mm, Interesting. That same word ruler appears again, and we see again Israel is rejecting Moses, the very guy that God had set in place to deliver them. Look at verse 35. After Moses is commissioned by God through the burning bush, and he returns back to Israel to free the people of Egypt, excuse me, when he turns back to Egypt to free the people of Israel, verse 35 ironically recounts this Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to them in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and so on and so forth. But this rejection of Moses doesn't end here. When Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the law, Stephen is careful to point out Israel's behavior. Look at verse 39. As Moses is receiving the law on Mount Sinai, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands." The following verses, verses 42 and 43, describe how Israel's idolatry ultimately led to its exile in Babylon. Do you see what Stephen is doing here? He's showing them throughout your history, you've rejected God. You've rejected his messengers. You've rejected Joseph and Moses. You've turned to idols. This has been a habit in your history, guys. And it culminates in verse um, 52 where we read, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. He says, you guys are in keeping in the same spirit of what your ancestors did. 
They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. They turned to idols. God sent them prophets to tell them about the coming of the righteous one. What'd they do to them? They killed the prophets. They rejected the prophets. And you guys killed the Messiah. The ultimate rejection you guys have committed. Fascinating how he just weaves all of this through the retelling of Israel's history to turn their accusations back on them. You think I'm changing the law? You've rejected the one whom the law anticipates. Really interesting here. What were the people accused of resisting in this passage of Scripture? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, Stephen calls them stiff-necked. He says they're uncircumcised in their hearts and in their ears. They're deaf and hard-hearted to the truth. They're stubborn. They've killed the very Messiah that their scriptures anticipate. How do the people respond to this? Uh, the text has some really interesting like responses. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at them. A little bit later, when Stephen says that he sees um, Jesus standing at the right hand of God, verse 57 says, but they cry out with a loud voice and stop their ears and rush together at him. And they stone Stephen for his proclamation of the truth. What is Stephen's response throughout all of this? Verse 55, he's full of the Holy Spirit, gazing into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Verse 60, as they were stoning him, he falls to his knees and cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who else does this sound like? Jesus. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities here. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, Stephen says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And then the text says simply that he falls asleep. What a model for us for how to die well to entrust our souls to Jesus, as Stephen does in verse 59, to forgive the very people that are killing him. Yeah, pretty awesome. There's a second set of questions from chapter 7 here. According to verse 58, who was present at the stoning of Stephen? You can just call this one out. Who's here? Saul, yeah. And how does Acts 1 to 8, 1 to 3, describe Saul's response to Stephen's death? and his role in the events that took place after. How, how does Saul, what's he doing? What, he approved of it. Yeah, I think uh, 8.1 says Saul approved of his execution. Saul is not just a, you know, casual bystander who happened to be there at the right place at the right time. He is approving of this. And what do verses 2 and 3 go on to describe about Paul's role in the events of the church after this? What's he doing? Yeah, he is ravaging the church. Um, he's going house to house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Saul is like attacking the church with fervor, with diligence. I mean, house to house, hauling people off to prison. I'm sure Saul's name struck fear into the hearts of people. And let me ask you, if you heard that there was someone who was so passionate about stomping out Christianity and you were a Christian and you hear that Saul is coming house to house checking on people, what are you going to do? Uh, hide? Yeah. Maybe get out of there? 
Like, this is intense. It's one thing for, like, you know, Saul to just kind of feel this way and, like, you know, kind of be just, like, internalize his anger towards Christianity. It's another to be coming after people. And if you felt threatened, if your family and your livelihood was at stake, I know myself, I'm probably getting out of here. According to chapter 8, verses 1 and 4, what effect did Paul's persecution have on the early church? What consequence of his persecution was there? Lynn? Yeah, people did exactly what you and I would do. Here's Paul. Get out of Jerusalem. And what is an interesting consequence of Paul's persecution in light of people scattering? Hutch? They spread the word. Yeah, to what regions does the gospel spread to? Yeah, Judea and Samaria. Very interesting. And how is that significant in light of the theme verse of Acts? It's the very locations that we're reading about. Saul is unintentionally contributing to what Jesus had told people to do. Go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and Saul's persecuting the church, and people are spreading to these very places. I think I have a picture of the map. So we started in Jerusalem. Paul persecutes the church. Whoop, here goes the gospel to these regions. And we're told that only the apostles stay behind in Jerusalem. Everyone else gets out of there. Uh, we know at this point there are at least 5,000 Christians. Can you imagine the thousands of people that are leaving Jerusalem and bringing the gospel to these regions? Unbelievable. Here is a persecutor of the church who is contributing to the spread of the gospel. As we continue Acts 8, it largely focuses on another one of the deacons, Philip. We're told that Philip actually goes to the city of Samaria. So there's the region on the map for you. There's also a city, Samaria, pretty much in the same place. Um, If you think that's weird that there'd be a city named after the region, Can I remind you of Kansas City, Kansas? We kind of do the same thing with our cities. So they had Samaria in Samaria. This is where Philip goes. And he is preaching the gospel, doing all these wonders and works, casting out demons, healing people. Peter and John actually catch wind of this, and they are sent from Jerusalem to Samaria to check it out. Upon Peter's arrival, he actually brings the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans. To be honest, that idea was a little bit weird to me. Why the delay in the Holy Spirit? Although... Uh, Pastor John and others pointed out to me that Peter is present with each of the people groups that receive the Holy Spirit. So he's there when the Jews receive the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. He's here in Samaria when they receive the Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 10, it is again Peter present when the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. And there might be a connection between Jesus saying that Peter has the keys to the kingdom and, and this. It might have something to do with Peter's role as an apostle in which he is sent to confirm or validate these conversions to know whether or not they're true. Regardless, when Peter comes to Samaria following Philip's evangelistic work, the people in Samaria receive the Holy Spirit. And then, as Philip is here in Samaria, an angel says, hey, I want you to go onto the road that connects Jerusalem and Gaza. We see that on the map right there. Gaza is down there by the Mediterranean Sea, and there was a road that connected Jerusalem and Gaza. And he says, Philip, Go to this road. In verse 29, who told Philip to go meet the Ethiopian 
eunuch. Who specifically? Yes, there was an angel involved, but someone else told him specifically to seek out the eunuch. I, th- I heard you mention it, I think, surely. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit is very present in the book of Acts, helping people defend their faith, pointing them to people who need to hear the gospel. And what Old Testament passage is this man reading from? Isaiah 53. I want you to imagine with me, as the text just kind of explains what goes on here, Philip approaches the chariot and he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the man replies, how can I unless someone explains it to me? We know ourselves how difficult the Bible can be to interpret sometimes, and this guy finds himself in a similar position. And he's reading Isaiah 53. I want us to just look at this passage ourselves. Verse 32 of Acts 8 says this. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. What question does the the eunuch ask Philip? He says, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? He says, I'm reading Isaiah 53 here. What's he talking about? Is he describing himself? Is he describing someone else? Can you imagine if someone asked us this question today? One of the most dear Old Testament passages of Scripture, Isaiah 53, this guy's reading it. And he says, hey, can you help me understand who this is about? We would say, buckle up. Here we go. We're going to talk about this. How awesome would that be, right? And what is Philip to? Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Just awesome. Unbelievable. And I just asked you to reflect on these verses and to think about how awesome it would be for someone to ask us who this passage of scripture is about. And I think I also just encourage you to pray along these lines, right? The Holy Spirit is leading Philip to people who are searching, who are encountering the truth. I know we've made it a practice on Wednesday nights to pray for people, that God would draw them to himself and to our church, people who are unchurched or in a church that is teaching a false gospel, and the Holy Spirit was orchestrating opportunities all the way back then. Does he not do the same for us today? I think we've seen answers to these kinds of prayers in our church here in the last year or so. It's been awesome. We know the rest of the story. They come across a body of water. This guy's baptized. And then verse 40, just kind of randomly, we're told 840. But Philip, after he's done, you know, evangelizing this Ethiopian man, he finds himself in his Otis. And as he preached through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, again, we probably just read about Azotus and it means nothing to us. But here it is on a map and we see how close it is to Gaza. So Philip is already on this road, and the Holy Spirit just kind of moves him to his Otis, and we're told that he preaches the gospel in all of the towns up to Caesarea. Now, that makes a lot more sense to us. He's in Azotus, and he's just traveling up the coast. And every town that he encounters up the coastline here until he gets to Caesarea, he is preaching the gospel. I think even just seeing those locations on a map, just like 
helps enrich the story a little bit more. We understand that. That seems like a natural road that would exist right there on the shore. And this is where Philip is going and preaching Christ. When we come to Acts chapter 9, we left Saul very much in a similar position to where he was at before. This time, he's on his way up to Damascus, which is way up there in the top corner of the map. So you can see uh, chapter 9, verse 1, describes Saul as still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. And so much so that he has enlarged his own territory of rooting out Christianity from Jerusalem way up there to Damascus. I mean, this is how far Saul is going to stamp out Christianity. This is not like next-door neighbors that he's upset at to Jerusalem. This is, I mean, I would say roughly 100 miles. I know the distance between the Sea of Galilee and the Red Sea is 65 miles, so that's got to be 100 miles up there, that he is going to eradicate this new movement from his perspective, this opponent or enemy of Judaism. But as Saul is on his way to Damascus, who appears to him in verse 5? Jesus, yeah, and if you have a red-letter Bible, it's way more obvious to you that Jesus is speaking here. Particularly unusual if you're not used to seeing red letters outside of the Gospels. Here Jesus is in the book of Acts, and he appears to Saul. And I just want you to think about it from Saul's perspective. He literally is an enemy of the church, believes that Christianity is the worst thing to happen to Judaism in forever, thinks that Jesus is a phony, that he's dead, that his followers are delusional. And yet the very guy who he is in, anticipate, in uh, antagonistic towards, Jesus, appears to him. How fast do you think Paul changes his mind about the legitimacy of Christianity when Jesus himself appears to him? We don't have to wonder about this. Look at verse 20. Immediately, Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Look at verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Instantly, Paul switches sides. And he says, I've encountered Jesus. He is the son of God. And people are just like totally confounded. Is this not the guy who was on his way to Damascus to like get rid of these people? To take him back with him to prison? And here he is promoting the very religion that he was set out to destroy. I mean, the 180 in Paul's life is unbelievable here. And how does Jesus describe the mission that he has called Paul to in verses 15 and 16? What does Jesus say about Paul's mission? What he's going to expect? What he's going to do? Diane, he's a chosen vessel. Hutch, he's going to suffer. Yeah. Already, we know that there is a lot of suffering that awaits Saul, and we'll encounter some of that in the book of Acts. And then we're told about the group of people that he would bring the gospel to, to kings and governors and Gentiles and the Jewish people. This guy that was once the greatest opponent of the early church becomes its greatest advocate and brings the gospel to the known world in some ways. All right, second part of Acts chapter 9. How do Ananias and the disciples respond to Paul initially? 
What is their response? <laughs> yeah, distrust. Certainly Ananias is like, uh, Lord, you know this guy was literally sent here to get rid of us, and now you want me to like go talk to him and like heal him of his blindness? Doesn't that seem a little counterintuitive from my perspective? But God's like, trust me. Uh, how do the disciples respond to him? Straight up fear. They, they are afraid when they find out that Saul is now a Christian, right? Yeah, is he undercover? That's probably what they're wondering. How does Ananias welcome him after God reassures him that his conversion was genuine? What does he say? He calls him brother. He says, Brother Saul. Who helps the disciples to welcome Paul in verse 27? Barnabas. Yeah, he tells the disciples, no, listen, this guy was up in Damascus preaching the truth. This is the experience he had. And then maybe a more thoughtful applicational question. What example does, the, does this give us for how we should welcome other believers? Openly? Openly? Yeah, what, what, what kind of thoughts do you have in seeing how these people received Saul? Hutch? Co-workers in the gospel? Totally. Yeah. Also with discernment. I mean, they had discernment. They had to hear that he had done um, good works and that, you know, he had changed and he met Jesus. So they didn't just, like, blind themselves. Certainly. John. Yeah, I think that's the most immediate application, is how are we welcoming people that come through these doors? Uh, are we welcoming them like Saul was welcomed? Right, if there today were an opponent of Christianity who genuinely came to Christ, what should our response be? You're in. Yeah, welcome, brother. We love you. And we can have that response because we know that we too have been forgiven a lot of sins, huh? Yeah, there's a lot of unity here. Um, Peter and the rest of Acts 9 goes to Joppa and Lydia. You can see those cities in proximity there to Jerusalem and Samaria. He's doing some mighty works. I think in both of those cities, like these just very blanket statements are made that like all of the people of these cities trust the Lord. It's unbelievable just the revival, as we would call it, that's taken place in this region. And when we come to chapter 10, there's a guy in Caesarea who receives a vision, uh, Cornelius. How is he described in verse 2 prior to his conversion? What is Cornelius like? Yeah, he's devout. He prays. He feared God. He gives alms. On the surface, I mean, this guy is worshiping the true God giving alms, doing all these really nice things, but is he a believer? He's not. What does this story demonstrate to us about people who are genuinely seeking God, though? God finds them. Yeah, sometimes we wonder about people in these far corners of the earth 
What if they are seeking God? From the example of Cornelius, it would seem that God brings people who share the gospel with them to them. You cannot get saved apart from Christ. Cornelius needs Jesus. That's what Peter ends up doing is bringing Jesus to him. Um, Peter has this crazy vision. Uh, He sees a sheet in which all of these animals are in the sheet and God tells him to eat three times. And he's like, I'm a Jew. I can't just eat any animal that I want my whole life. I've not eaten any sort of animal. I've kept the dietary restrictions. But what does Peter come to realize that God was intending to illustrate to him? This is not God saying all foods are lawful. Jesus had already done that back in the Gospels. What is Paul trying to demonstrate to Peter? Yeah, all are worthy to be saved. The gospel is for everybody. And in verse 34, quickly, what truth about God does Peter highlight regarding salvation being available to the Gentiles? What is true about God? He's impartial. The gospel is available to everybody. And that is what we are seeing in the book of Acts as it spreads like wildfire. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we're just glad for the chance to look at these five chapters and to see the spread of your gospel. Please, like you gave Philip opportunity to talk to this Ethiopian man through the direction of your spirit, would you also guide us to people who are searching and reading and have uh, opportunity to share Christ with them? That would be awesome if you would do that for us here in Drake. Thank you for your son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.